0: Hey everybody, my name is Lori, grateful member of Al-Anon. My recovery date is July 1st, 2001, and my home group is the Start Fresh group. We meet Mondays at 5.30 at a place called the Western Club in Oklahoma City. And welcome to the Ohio Buckeye Roundup in Kentucky. But only in AA does that make sense. And, uh... Honestly, we flew in, I, I promise you, we were at the very furthest gate, uh, the very furthest gate when we, when we flew in. And I told, as we walked, we walked all the way through the airport, all the way down into ground transportation. And I said, I think we landed in Ohio and now we are in Kentucky. I think that's how that works. And, um, that's what it felt like anyway. And, uh, anyway, uh, I want to thank, uh, chris and becky for picking us up and taking us to get water i always have to get smart water i'm a water snob i can't tell you how and why but um no i but uh, they took us to go so i could get some water for my room and stuff and uh, they've been great and uh thank you for the little um bag of goodies in our room my husband has already gone through half of that and uh, and uh anyway so i appreciate everything thank you guys for asking us thank you guys for having us here and uh Uh, And I want to thank our taper, Bob. You know, um, when I first got here, um, my sponsor always gave me CDs to listen to in my car all the time. And I'm going to tell you, I've had the privilege of listening to a lot of speakers, and I needed that in between meetings. I will just tell you, you're getting ready to hear how crazy I was. Still am. And... uh, and those helped so much. It was like having a meeting all the time. And so, you know, they do a great service. They record our histories. They record these stories. And, um, and so if you're, so please, if you have any, uh, even if you don't like anybody here, go buy some CD this weekend. If you don't, you don't have to get my, my CD. You don't have to get my husband's. You don't have to get Buckley's. However, Buckley was hilarious last night. I mean, you might not want to listen to that driving in your car, but, um, cause you might wreck, but, but please go support our tapers. They do a, such a great service for us. They record our history, and it is such needed. And um, and, and, and really, please, please, um, if I ask you for anything today, could you just please support them? Okay. Let's get this out of the way. I was born. And when I was born, I had two older sisters and an older brother waiting on me. My oldest sister is 11 years older than me. She has drank... Smoked, taken a pill, done something since I can remember. And she doesn't think she has a problem and she doesn't think she's an alcoholic. And I got to be honest, I don't think she is either, but she gives a good impression of one. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and I got another sister and 10, and uh, who's 10 years older than me. And about 15 years ago, she came into the program of AA. And about eight years later, she called, or seven years later, actually, she called me crying. And I answered the phone and I said, what is wrong? And she goes, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, because I really want to be. And I said, oh, my God, what is going on? And she said, I feel like a fake and a fraud in those meetings. Um, I've been back through the book with my sponsor. We went back through the steps. And she says, you know, nobody can tell you if you're an alcoholic or not. But I'm going to make an exception in your case. You are not an alcoholic. And she's not she's really not. And I said, well, why did you come to AA in the first place? And she said, well, if I'm being honest, I thought my husband would follow me into the rooms. And I said, welcome to (laughs) Al-Anon. And, uh, and then I had a brother, um, who's six years older than me. And, um, five years ago, he died of this disease and, uh, he died the alcoholic death that is described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My brother was 6'5", and he weighed about 135, 140 pounds on his deathbed. And I'm going to tell you, I learned to love my brother for who he was and what he was, and I didn't learn that anywhere else but here. For the majority of my brother's life, I tried to get him to do something that he could not do, and that was live sober. I tried to get him to be somebody he could not be, and um, I always thought that I could fix him or change him or guilt him enough to do something different. And I, I was, you know, I was pretty horrible to him for a majority of his life. And when I got here, you guys told me that I needed to love him for who he was and what he was, and and I learned to do that. And you know, we had the best relationship I could have with somebody who's who is an active alcoholism, and I had learned to set boundaries with him. And uh, the last thing he said on this earth was that he loved me. And I knew that he loved me, and he knew that I loved him. And, you know, I, had to have, I have some peace today knowing that he's much better off now than he ever was here. Um, and then there's me, and I am the baby, and I have never drank or done a drug in my whole entire life. I know. Let it sink in. I get it. Um, you know, what I know about that today is that that's all about control. See, I'd seen what happened to my brother. He'd been in prison three times. He'd been in jail more times than I can count. My sister seemed to get in a lot of trouble they, when they'd been drinking, and I just was not going to be like them. And so at a young age, I decided I was never going to do that, and I thought in my in my mind if if I didn't drink or drag that I would never be affected by alcoholism. Now, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I didn't have those words for it at six years old or whatever it was when I made this decision. I just knew that um I wasn't going to be like them. And, um, obviously that control worked out really well. Here I am. And, uh, and so I, you know, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. My parents are not alcoholics. Um, my daddy was the hardest working man I've ever met in my whole entire life. Um, my dad was as old as everybody else's grandfathers my age. And my dad grew up during the depression and was in world war two and and, you know, uh, when you grow up around somebody that age that you, you're just to be seen and not heard. And, you know, he didn't really just I just don't think he knew really what to do with me. And I, I was just kind of around my dad most of the time. But we lived on 10 acres in a small town and we had a little farm and we had cattle and, you know, we just worked hard. We've always worked up my whole life. I've worked hard. I've always been taught to, you know, you can you can do anything as long as you work hard. And I really believe that. And I, and I was taught that my dad taught me a good work ethic and, and they taught me right from wrong and good morals and and I loved everything about my life i 'm going to tell you I had a good life and uh we we lived in this little town and everybody knew us and I knew everybody and I was happy and Then I turned seven and uh, and when I turned seven, my parents got a divorce, and uh, my mama moved me. And from that little town to a suburb of Oklahoma City. And I hated everything about it. And I was used to being my closest neighbor being a mile down the road. And now I can like reach out and touch the house next door to me. And I hated everything about it. And uh, one of the things I hated about it is that kids teased me for the first time. And that never happened to me before. Nobody had ever teased me before. Never, nobody had ever really been mean to me before. Well, my brother, but that was kind of his job. And, um, but kids tease me and the reason why they tease me is because I was the ugliest kid in school. I'm going to tell you what I look like. If you would like to see pictures, my husband has some on his phone. He'd be happy to show you. (laughs) Um, I have back teeth really, really bad. And I had these eye teeth that grew out through my gums because my baby teeth wouldn't fall out. So I looked like a vampire bunny. And, uh, then I had my, I had a big nose. Um, I got my nose fixed when I was in my twenties. My doctor said, your nose would look better on a man. I said, it does. It's my daddy's nose. And, um, it looks good on him. Um, but not so much on me. And, uh. And then I had these big, thick glasses because I couldn't see three feet in front of my face. Um, I had long, stringy hair. I was a tomboy. My brother wanted a little brother because he had two older sisters and he wanted a little brother when I was born. And when I, and he got me. And so he did the best with what he had. And, uh, and so I was a tomboy and I did all the things. And I, and I'm going to tell you for the majority of my life, I've always felt more comfortable around men and, and around boys because I kind of did boy things. I mean, I, I raced bikes with him and we, um, climb trees and played football one of my favorite things we played football and and you know we just did I raced cars with him I did not have Barbie dolls growing up I did not have that kind of stuff I had boy toys because that's what I liked I like to do stuff with the guys and so um I was I had I had stringy long hair a little skinny little kid not very hygienic and so the kids teased me and uh and they would talk, to, they'd call me names And they'd trip me going down the hall at school And they'd throw things at me as I walked home from school And what that taught me was If you're going to hurt me, you're not going to get close to me So I just didn't have friends growing up And I don't say that to be dramatic That was my choice, it was just easier way to do And so I was a latchkey kid I would come home from school, lock myself in the house And I read a lot of books And I watched a lot of TV I learned a lot from Bugs Bunny, I'm just saying And um, and uh and that's just kind of why it was. Um, uh, when my parents got a divorce, my mom didn't want a divorce, and uh, and uh, she had a really hard time with it. And uh, she started going out on weekends. And um, and she, the more, uh, the more, the longer that we were that she was divorced, the more she would go out. And she and I would be left at home a lot on my own. And by the time that I was probably I don't know nine or ten years old. She would leave on a Friday to go out and then I wouldn't hear from her again until Monday morning when she called me and told me to get up and get ready to go to school and I had no rules at my mom's house, but I was the parent. I had become the parent in that household. I don't know how it happened or when it happened. I can just tell you eventually it happened. And I was the one that was uh, fixing my own meals and I was cleaning the house and I was doing all the laundry. And I know that I was doing those things because I thought if I did those things, she'd stay home and, I and, and she didn't. And, um, but we had become the, par- I had become the parent. We had switched roles and I don't, again, don't know, really know what, when that happened. I had no rules at my mom's house. I could do whatever I wanted, but I was a good kid. I really kind of never got in any trouble I never really did anything too bad but um I, I that's just the way it kind of was now my dad's house it was totally different I already told you I'm a daddy's girl i, I he was you know you just did whatever he said and and you didn't even question it and um, and so when I would go over to my dad's house he had this girlfriend I hated and uh we always went to her house and uh we always went to her house and had dinner and we were, and there was always something going on. Again, daddy is the hardest working man I know. And so we're, there's always something going on over there. They're retiling the floor or they're working on a tractor or they're working out in the garden or they're fixing the fence or they're working on a car. And, um, and I was just kind of there. Um, I would, you know, if daddy needed me, I'd be there to hand tools or shine the light or do whatever he needed me to do, go get something from the house, bring it to him. But other than that, I was just kind of there. And that's just the way that it was. And I just thought that's how, what happens when parents get divorced. And, um, and about when, then when I was 13, my dad, um, married that woman. And two weeks later, my mom had met this man and they got married and I had this stepdad all of a sudden in my house and he wanted to become the parent. And I had taken over that role really nicely. I was not ready to relinquish it, um, but he thought he could do a better job, and uh, he became the parent in, in that household because my mom could I could not or would not. I'm not really sure, honestly. And uh, and he became really he was really strict with me. And like I said, I'd never had any rules at my mom's house. And then this guy sets, I mean, he sets the hammer down and, and I have all these rules now that I have to follow. And, um, and we, you know, we always, that whole relationship was a power struggle with him, but he was really good to me. I'm going to tell you, I don't know that I'd still, I'd be here today if it weren't for that man. And I, and I need you to hear that. Cause he did a lot of good things for me. He, uh, he got my teeth fixed. He got me contacts. He took me to buy store-bought clothes for the first time. Cause up until that time, I'd always had hand-me-down clothes or garage sale clothes. And he took me to go shopping at the mall and before school started to get me new school clothes. And, and he taught me a lot. He was a smart man and he taught me a lot of things. And, um, but I need you to hear all that good things about him because our relationship does not end well. And what happened was when I was 16, I caught him watching me take showers through the skylight in the bathroom. And, uh, I had caught him a couple of times. I, I had heard him up there a couple of times when I was in the shower. And I, and, and at first I wasn't really sure, but I figured it out pretty quickly. And, uh, but every time that I caught him, my mom had not been home and, and I told my mom about it. And I told him that I thought he was getting on the roof of the house while I took showers. And one night she was home, it was 1130 at night. And, uh, and and she was home, and I went and turned on the shower and waited, and heard him get on the roof. And I went and woke up my mom, and my mom came into the kitchen and she heard him up on the roof, and she heard him get down and come through the back door, and she asked him what he was doing on the roof at eleven thirty at night, and he said he was cleaning the gutters. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, you know, makes sense to me. Cliff and I are going to get home about nine o'clock on a, on Sunday. I think we're after we go get the dogs and get the house cleaned up, we're going to clean the gutters because there's nobody up there and. No traffic. It's kind of easy going. Anyway, look, I don't know if my mama believed him, um, but I think she was just too scared to lose that security. See, she had been looking for him for a long, long time. And um, and I got asked to leave that house a few months later. And that was fine with me because now I get to go live with my daddy, which I'd been wanting to do for a long, long time. problem was my daddy was dying at the time. We have a kidney disease that runs in our family. It's hereditary and my dad was on a dialysis machine at that time three times a week. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't going to make it much longer, and I knew that. And so I did to my dad what I did with those kids. If you're going to hurt me, you're not going to get close to me. And I just kept really busy. I had a job after school at a bank, and, um, and then I always had something going on. I was, I was a part of you know the newspaper. I was the newspaper editor and the sports editor, and I did all this kind of stuff. And – sorry. And – um. <clears throat> And so I just kept really busy, and I literally would come home in time to do my homework, eat dinner, take a shower, and go to bed. And then I would get up the next morning and leave again. And uh, and so what happened was the week of my high school graduation, I mean literally the week of my high school graduation, my dad got a kidney transplant and saved his life. And it changed our relationship instantly. And, uh, and it was the first time that I started having really... Deep conversations with my dad and I started to find out who he was and, and I really got to know him and he would talk to me and I would, um, and I would talk to him and he would ask me about what was going on and I would be honest with him and we, it was the, really the first time in my whole life that we actually started really getting to know each other and he loved um, that I was living there. Um, I graduated from high school. I got a job at a bank right down the street. He loved that. I would come home for lunch. He would have lunch ready for me we uh, we had We were having a great time and uh you know, I got to hear about him growing up during during the depression and i and i 'm going to tell you it is true they did walk up hill both ways in the snow to go to school, which is kind of hard in Oklahoma because it doesn 't snow there and um <laughs> but <sighs> And, you know, he didn't really talk about World War II. They just didn't talk about that. He just didn't really, he would mention everything, something every once in a while, but it was just something not discussed. And, uh, and again, I think it's just that time frame and those, and that period of when they were growing up and, and, uh, and anyway, so I, uh, I, everything was going good. I mean, I really, everything was going good. My dad and I were doing great. Everybody, you know, my side learned to love that stepmother that I hated and, um, and, um, and everything was fine, and uh, I turned 19, and I met I, I met a guy, and uh, I was 19. He was 27. I met him in September. In November, he asked me to marry him, and in March, we got married, and my daddy hated him and my daddy hated him from the get. I'm just telling you, he never liked him. And, and I'm going to tell you, there are people that are trying to tell me, please don't do this. You're too young. You don't know what you're doing. You know, he's 27, you're 19. This is a big mistake. And I don't know what y'all were like at 19, but I knew everything. <laughs> I wish that stopped at 19. It did not. I continued to know everything, um, <clears throat> pretty much my whole life. And, and you know, I just thought you guys don't understand, you don't get it. Um it, this is this is it. And you know, um I got married to this guy and I'm and I'm going to tell you the truth of the matter is I instantly knew it was the biggest mistake of my life. But if you grow up somebody like me, and I don't know where all this comes from, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm never wrong. And I don't make mistakes and I do not apologize because I'm always right and I and I can't, I don't want to hear I told you so, I don't want to hear, I see this is what we we're trying to tell you if you would have just listened I, I don't want to hear all that so I just think I'm going to do what I've always done I'm just going to work hard and I'm going to make this work and I tried that um, and and you know it was I'm just going to tell you it, there was not very many, I cannot remember very many happy moments in that marriage um, but we. I tried, I really did try, I just thought that this is just where, where what, what's going to happen and After about four years, um, we had a little boy. Cause if you have a bad marriage, bring a kid into it. Cause we want everybody to enjoy the fun. And, um, and, you know, I had this little boy and he became the only reason I came home at night. I am now living back in the country with the, with this guy and I'm driving to the city an hour every day to go to work. And, um, and the, and and that's I, that's because I can get away from him. I mean that's the truth. And the only reason I come home at night is uh, is for that little boy. And I'm looking for a way out of that marriage, and I don't know how to do that. And you know I have these rules in my head. I'm not really sure where they come from, but I have these rules in my head of why you can get a divorce, and there's only a few. And here are the reasons. Um, you, they have to beat you, and he did not. And he has to cheat on you, and he did not. Or he has to be an alcoholic, and he was not. However, had he been an alcoholic, we might still be married. I don't know. Um, but he wasn't. And I, and I don't know how to get out of this marriage. I, cause I, I told you, I grew up with morals. I grew up knowing right and wrong. I, you know, I, I, there were things that I just truly believed that I, you know, you just don't do. And, and I just, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I really didn't. And I was miserable. And, and I, and I mean, I, every day, I just thought, how, how, how am I going to get out of here? And, uh, and I was working at a bank in the city and, uh, one day, uh, the way out of my marriage walked through the door. He was the best looking thing I've ever seen. He was five, six. I don't know what it is about short guys. I like short guys. I've always liked short guys. I've always dated short guys. If you're short, I'm going to like you. If you're short and alcoholic, I'm going to love you. And, uh, his five, six, he had this dark Brown hair. He had these baby blue eyes and this great smile. He was the attorney for the bank. He was on my board of directors and is on my loan approval committee. And he always wore these great suits with these great ties. You will see tonight. And, um, and every time he walked in the bank, all the girls would giggle and bat their eyes and flirt with him, and all the guys would pat him on the back and shake his hand. And I literally would go in the other room and hide because I could not form a sentence around him. He made me so nervous. And that has never happened before or since. Um, but one day he asked me if I could bring a file down to his office at lunchtime, and he took me to lunch, and that was it. I started dating him, and I left my husband. And unfortunately, that's the order that it came in. And you need to hear that because I lied about that for a lot of pe- to a lot of people for a lot of years. That is not a suggestion, by the way. Um, I do not recommend doing that. Um, but I'm going to tell you, alcoholics do not have the market cornered on selfishness and self centeredness. When I made that decision, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, and I didn't care who I hurt or what happened, and I didn't think about anybody else. To, to be honest with you, never thought about anybody else. But I did a lot of damage by making that decision. And that's the truth. And I, and I lied about that for a lot of years. Now, I did not consider them lies. I will just tell you because, again, I'm always right. I'm never wrong. I don't apologize. So when somebody would ask me about it, which didn't happen very often because nobody was that brave, but when somebody would kind of try to ask a question about what was going on, I would say something like this. Oh, we were separated long before I started dating him. And we were separated. I was in the kitchen and he was in the garage we were separated. And, uh, or I would say, Oh, our marriage was over long before I started dating him. And that was actually the truth. But my husband at the time just did not know it. And, um, and that's the kind of things that I say to people, because again, I'm never wrong. I'm always right. I never apologize. I don't make mistakes and I've got to look like the good person. I can't be the bad guy in any of these situations. So I start dating him. I leave my husband. We get a divorce and, uh, and I start dating this guy and he's crazy. But he's a lot of fun. I mean, he's a lot of fun. We are, he's exciting. We have fun no matter what we do. We have fun talking on the phone. We have fun watching TV. We have fun going out to dinner. We have fun going shopping. We have fun no matter what we do. We are having a good time. But I noticed he's a little crazy. Um, he's a little embarrassing sometimes, but I can work with that. And, uh, and then I noticed that he doesn't sleep very well for like days at a time. And then he will sleep for like days at a time. And that is interesting to me because I can't make it through a slumber party. And so <laughs> I asked him about that. I said, why do you not sleep? And he says, I have a sleeping disorder. I've had it since college. And I said, huh. Now, I don't know what normal people do with that information, but I'm going to tell you what an untreated al of my type does with that information. I'm going to help you. Um <clears throat> And I said to him, you know, you need to get, you need to go see a doctor about that. That's not normal. And he said, Oh, I have, and I've done sleep studies and I went to doctors and they can't figure it out again. I don't know what happens with normal people with that information, but now you are now my project and I I am going to help you now. Here's something you need to know. He did not ask for my help. That does not deter a person like me. And, um, there's a lady back home. She's a member of my home group. She's been a member of my home group since like, since before I got there. And she and her sponsor taught her this little bit of information. And I'm sure her sponsor got it from her sponsor. <clears throat> but I had probably been in the program a few months before she let me know that helpfulness is the sunny side of control. <laughs> so <clears throat> y'all might want to remember that the next time you're to be in, helpful. And so... <clears throat> But I'm going to help him. He did not ask for my help. That does not deter me. I am going to help him. And so I start asking him questions. I start watching. I start looking around. I start trying to figure it out because I'm a good figure outer. And I start looking around. I try to figure all this stuff up and I can't figure out why he's not sleeping. I really can't. So I do what any normal person would do in that situation. I move in with him because you got to watch him 24 <laughs> seven. I'm pretty sure there's too much caffeine intake going on or too much screen time. I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I move in with him and now I start asking questions. Now I'm looking around. Now I'm following him. I'm doing all the little things trying to add. And, and I start, and it seems like the more that I start to ask him questions and inquire on what's going on, the more irritated he gets with me. And we start having these little arguments. And I'm going to tell you at first, it's no big deal. There's these little arguments and he gets mad. I get mad. And we get snappy with each other. We go our separate ways. He comes back a few minutes later and apologizes and we go about our day and notice I say he comes back and apologizes cuz I do not. And um <clears throat> and so that starts happening and and then uh seems like the more that I'm looking and the more I'm inquiring the more these fights are happening the more these arguments are getting more intense and the and um and we're starting to get in these you know, pretty heated arguments by this time. And one time I, I don't, I don't remember what happened. We got in this big, huge argument and I left and I went back to my apartment because I have a backup plan. We always have a backup plan. We don't get rid of the apartment. And um, so I went back to the apartment and I'd been gone about two weeks and he knew that if he called me on my cell phone, I had caller ID, but I didn't have caller ID on my apartment. And one day he called me at my apartment and I answered the phone and he said, don't hang up. And I said, what do you want? And he said, you know, I've been thinking about it and I thought maybe we should go see a counselor together. And I thought that was a great idea. I had never been to a counselor before, but I thought that was a great idea. And, uh, he said, listen, I, I'm gonna, I'll call and make us an appointment and I'll, and I'll let you know. And I said, okay. And so he called me back and he said, listen, she wants to see you by yourself first before we go together. Will you go? And I said, sure. And he gave me the time and, time and date and place and I went. Now, I, again, I'd never been to a counselor before or a therapist, I, and I don't know if anybody in this room has ever gone to counseling or therapy or anything like that. I'm looking around the room thinking probably not. But <clears throat> that, perhaps maybe a few of you might have gone to some get some professional help at some point, and um, <clears throat> I don't know what happened where you guys went, and I don't know what they did there, but I'm going to tell you what happened here. She gave me this intake sheet to fill out, and it had these questions on it. And the questions were things like this. Have you ever drank more than two or three drinks at a time? Have you ever abused prescription drugs? Have you ever taken illegal drugs? Have you ever smoked marijuana? Have you ever had more than two sexual partners at a time? Have you ever dressed promiscuously to get attention? I am checking no as fast as I can check no on this form thinking, who comes in here? I mean, I just need a little relationship advice. What is all this? And, uh... And so she comes in and she says, listen, I'm going to look this over, give me about 10 minutes, and then I'll come back out and get you. And I said, okay. And I promise you, she barely walked in her door before she flipped right back around. And she looked at that sheet of paper and she looked up at me and she said, well, looks like the only thing sick about you is that you're dating Cliff Gooding. Let's talk about that. And that's what she said. And what I heard was, see, it's him. It's not you. He's the problem, which I knew. (laughs) <laughs> and so we started going to this counselor based on the fact that he was the problem. And uh, we'd been going for a while, and it seemed like everything would go okay for a little bit, and then we'd get crazy again, and, and we were constantly still having these little arguments and fights. And then, and then one day, he convinced her he was bipolar, and she gave him medication for that. And now, and now we have an excuse and a reason for all the behavior. And so now every time that, um, he, he doesn't sleep, it's, I forgot to take the medication. And when he sleeps, I took the medication, but I took too much. It's the wrong side kind. kind. It's the wrong dose. It's the wrong, but is, I, I forgot I did too. I, whatever. There's always an excuse for everything. The reason why we don't eat, the reason why we eat, the reason why we every there's, it's always the medication. And it's always, I forgot I did too much. It's the wrong kind. It's not working anymore. She's going to switch it. I mean, there's always a reason. And and it's just craziness at our house, and we're having. And now these fights have gone from these arguments and 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 our, I mean, these heated arguments and stuff to to really knock down, drag out fights, and I'm talking screaming, yelling, cussing, throwing, slamming doors, all the things. And we are horrible to each other. Now, what you need to know is at the time that Cliff and I got together, I had my little boy was four years old, and he had a little girl that was five. And I'm going to tell you, those kids have heard their parents say things to each other I wouldn't say to my worst enemy today. And they have seen us treat each other worse than I would ever treat another human being on this earth today. They have been through it, I will just say, and I am not proud of that. But when alcoholism is alive and well and I have no solution, he is my sole focus. And unfortunately, those kids are collateral damage in that vat. And they, they hear things and see things and I yell at them and I, and, and he is my sole focus. And even when I'm there and I'm there in body, I am not there in my mind because I'm constantly thinking about him. Where is he? What's he doing? What's he going to be like tonight when he get, when we get home? Is he going to show up for whatever we have planned or is he going to be a crazy person? Is he going to act appropriately? Can we go out in public? I mean, all those things are in my mind all the time. And I will just tell you another thing I am not proud of, but it is absolutely the truth. That every single time that we got in a fight and every time that we had plans and every time that he couldn't make it or there was a fight or whatever happened, I made sure those kids knew that the reason why I was in such a bad mood, the reason why we didn't get to do what we said we were going to do, the reason why he was acting like this, and the reason why all these people were embarrassed was because of him. It was his fault. If he would do this, we wouldn't be in this situation. And I'm going to tell you I did everything in my power without realizing it to turn those kids against their own dad. And again, not anything I'm proud of, but that's exactly what happens when alcoholism is alive and well in my home. So we're getting, we're having these horrible fights. Everything's going crazy. Uh, we've been going to this counselor for two years. She finally has had enough of us and is like can't do anything else with us and sends us to somebody else. And this lady had him figured out in like three visits. I did not know that, but she had him figured out in three visits. I found out later she was a member of Al-Anon. Anyway, and so... <clears throat> we're on like visit three and, uh, and he's been up for days I mean, he's been up for days again where I am. I am at my wits end again. We are having these horrible fights again. And she says, here, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to write you a prescription for tranquilizers. I want you to give him one at six and I want you to give him another one at 10. And if he's not, and then I want you to go to bed. And I said, okay. And so that night I gave him one at six, he was not asleep by 10. So I gave him another one and I went to bed. And I got up the next morning, and he was not in bed with me, which at this time is not an uncommon occurrence. There are so many times of that by this time, by the time that I wake up, he's either in the, in the living room on the couch, or he's in our guest room on the other side of the house. On this particular morning, he was in the guest room on the other side of the house. And I went to go wake him up, and when I went to go wake him up, I went to open the door, and he had barricaded himself in, which had not happened before. He had shoved a love seat up against the door, and the other door leading in from the bathroom was locked. And I and and listen. I don't know about you, but if you're an untreated al anon of my type, a love seat is no barricade for people like us. Um, if you're an alcoholic and we need to get to you, we don't care if you're in the middle of Fort Knox. We're going to get you. We have an innate ability to seek, find, and retrieve. And um, and and I don't care who you are. I'm just telling you, if you're untreated like me, we are gonna we are gonna get to you. It does not matter. I'm convinced to this day that if you would have just told a group of untreated Al-Anons that Osama bin Laden was a drunk and his family needed him at home, there would have been no need for military action. <laughs> because we can get you. We can. So I break in on him. He is passed out in bed. And there's an empty bottle of vodka next to the bed. There's an empty bottle of wine next to the bed. And up next to the bed, he's pulled up at the end table on, and a, with a TV on top of it. And on top of the adult videos that had ran out was a little clear package with some white substance in it. And that's how I found out what was going on. I hit him as hard as I could hit another human being, and he bolted up out of that bed. He popped up out of bed. His eyes were this big around. I shook that packet at him, and I said, what the heck is this? Those aren't my exact words, but I am behind a podium. And he said, he looked at that packet, and he looked back over at me, and he goes, I don't know. When Cliff gets to tell this story, he likes to say, I guess those people that barricaded me in here must have dropped it on their way out. (laughs) Anyway, another fight ensued, and uh, I told him to leave the house, and he did, and he came back a couple of hours later, and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I live here. And I said, not today. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, why don't you go tell Wilma what you've been doing? Wilma is our daughter, my stepdaughter. It's her mom. And at the time, Wilma had about 13 or 14 years in the program of AA. And I said, why don't you go tell Wilma what you've been doing? He said, okay. And he left. And he came back a couple hours later. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I went and did what you said. I went and told Wilma. She took me to a meeting. We're going to do 90 meetings in 90 days. I had no idea what he was talking about, and I did not care. And I said, I don't care. You're not living here now. And he's like, okay. And he left. And I called Wilma. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you I called Wilma because I wanted to know what she was going to say because she had 11 or 12 years or 13 years in the program of AA. But I called Wilma to check up on him. And she answered the phone and I said, did he tell you what he's been doing? And she said, yeah. And we went to a meeting and we're going to do 90 meetings in 90 days. Still didn't know what she was talking about. Still did not care. And I said, well, that's great. What do I do? And she said, would you be willing to go to a meeting with me tomorrow? And I said, Yes. I'm going to tell you why I said yes, not because I had a problem, not because there was anything wrong with me. I said yes because I had tried everything I could possibly think and do to try to get that man to do and act the way that I thought he should do and act, and I have tried it all. I have begged, I have plead, I have cried, I have threatened, I have punished. Punishing is one of my favorites, just so you know. I have followed him, I have stalked him, I have driven through parking lots looking for cars. I have looked through his car, I have looked through glove boxes, I have looked through wallets, I have looked through pockets. I have called offices to see if he was there. I have called people looking for him to find out where he was. I have tracked him down. I have done it all. I have done it all, and none of it worked. And I was out of ideas. Well, I had one idea left. <clears throat> I was going to kill him. I mean, I was going to kill him. I planned it out. I knew how I was going to do it. I knew how I was going to get away with it. By the way, one of the worst things that can happen for untreated Alanons of my type is for us to watch too many episodes of Forensic Files and Dateline. Because <laughs> we have figured it out. I mean, all those people make the same mistakes. If you watch, they all make the same mistakes. I mean, it's not that hard to figure out. You can, you just keep watching them. You've, I've watched every episode. I will just tell you several times over. I can tell you who did it as soon as the first thing start. I can tell you everything about it because we have figured it out. I mean, DNA, wear a hazmat suit. How hard is this? I mean, we can figure it out. So I was going to kill him, and she asked to go to a meeting, and I thought, I'll go to a meeting. Murder will be a backup plan. And so I went to my first meeting and she took me to my first meeting and she took me to my second meeting and she took me to my third meeting. I have no idea how you guys got to your programs, but I got here with the ex-wife and, uh, and it worked out just fine with me. So I started going to Al-Anon and, uh, 45 days later, Cliff relapsed and he came in the door and I said, you've been drinking and you've been using. He's like, no, I haven't. I said, we're going to do a drug test because you're being a little harsh. And, uh, another fight ensued, and I asked him to leave the house again, and I called Wilma again. And she said, you know what I think we should do? And I said, what? She said, I think we should get supervised visitation with our kids. And I thought that was a great idea. And I wish I could stand up here today and say I did that because I needed to protect my kids, and I love my kids, and I wanted them to be safe. I did that to punish him. I did it to punish him. You see, you drink at me, I'll show you. You relapse on me. I'll tell you, what, show you what I can do to you. I told you I liked punishment. So we go to see this lady, this attorney, who happens to be a member of AA. And uh, she asked me, she said, uh, do you want a divorce? And I said, no. And she said, well, what do you want? And I said, I just want him to be okay. She goes, well, if that's true, if you really mean that, and that's really what you want... You need to decide what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do, and you need to be really sure about that. You need to think about it, and you need to make that decision. And when you know what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do, you need to go talk to him. But let me just say something: we don't say anything, we don't mean, we don't threaten, we don't say anything we're not willing to follow through with. But when you get when you're at that point and you're ready to talk to him, you need to go be you need to be matter of fact. You need to not threaten follow through but when you go to talk to him you need to be really calm now I'm just going to tell you there are a thousand adjectives that can describe me calm ain't making the list (laughs) I have never been calm in my whole entire life I don't know what calm is I've never been around calm crisis and chaos I am your girl I am great in crisis and chaos that is my wheelhouse I know how to deal with that I've been dealing with that my whole life but I do not know how to be calm but I'd been going to Al-Anon for 45 days. And honestly, the only thing that had sunk in my brain in 45 days was the serenity prayer. At the time, I had this really good job. <clears throat> um, actually, Cliff had not worked in the last three years of his drinking, and I had been supporting us. And I had this really good job, and, and 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 I was in my car a lot, driving around a lot in, during the, in this job. <clears throat> and so... That morning after I left her, I just got in my car and I drove around and I said this serenity prayer over and over again. And I'm going to tell you if I said it once, I said it 500 times. And at the end of the day, I called him and I asked him if he would meet me at the house and he said he would. And when I came in, I came in and he had his back turned to me. And I asked him to turn around and I grabbed his hands and this is what came out of my mouth. I know this is hard and I know you have a problem and I know you must be scared. And I'm willing to do whatever I need to do. If I need to go to counseling or therapy or meetings or treatment, whatever I need to do to do my part, I'm willing to do that. But only if you can do your part. And if you can't do that, I can't stay. And I'm going to tell you that may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was everything to me. Because I had never been okay without him. If it was him or the him before him, or the him before him, I've always had to have somebody in my life to make me feel better about me. I've never been okay on my own. I've never felt okay on my own. I've never been comfortable in my own skin since I was a little girl. I have, I've never been pretty enough, smart enough, rich enough, fill in the blank enough. But at that time, at that moment, when I said that to him, I knew I was going to be okay. It was the first time since I was a little girl that I fit, that I was all right. And I knew I was going to be okay, and I knew it not only in my head, but I knew it in my heart, in my soul, and in my gut. And I knew that if he said to me, screw you, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and if you don't like it, there's the door, I knew I was going to be absolutely fine. And I was prepared for that. But that's not what he said. What he said was, you're right, I am scared, and I do have a problem. And I, he also let me know that he did not have bipolar and that he did not have a sleeping disorder, which I would kind of figured out by that time, but it was nice for the verification. Um, and I said, what are you going to do differently? Because I knew he'd been going to AA. I mean, he'd been going to AA meetings. And I said, so what are you going to do different? And he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to ask a man to sponsor me tomorrow and I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. And I do not know why, but I'm going to tell you, when he said that to me, I knew he meant it. I knew he meant it. I knew that something had changed. And I can't tell you what that was, but I I just knew there was something different about him. And I said, okay. And the next morning he got up and he went to that meeting and he asked that man to sponsor him and told him he'd do whatever he asked him to do. And he's been sober ever since. And that left me with me. And when the obsession in my life starts getting better and I am just going to meetings, I get sicker. Because I'm going to meetings, and I'm going to tell you, one of the things that I love about meetings, about Al-Anon, especially at our first meetings, is that they let you talk and share about anything that you need to talk and share about because they know that this is the first place that it's safe. And they have felt and know what it's like for you. They know you're the newcomer. They know what it was like when you they first walked in. They know who you are. And they know. And they let, and so, the, you know, they let you share. And here's what's going on in my house. Cliff's doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. He's got a sponsor. He's taking the steps. He's got service commitments. He's going, he's reading the book with the sponsor on a regular basis. He's doing everything that his sponsor asked him to do, and he is on fire. And I am watching and I am waiting because I know what's going to happen. He's going to relapse and I'm going to catch him and then I got to punish him. And so I'm waiting and watching. And so he comes in the door and, and it's, and I'm a crazy woman. I mean, I am a crazy woman, seriously. And so he comes in the door and this is about, this is really kind of the conversation every night. And he comes in the door and I go, what did you do today? How many meetings have you gone to? Did you go to your, with your sponsor? Did your sponsor call you today? Have you called your sponsor? Have you talked to him today? How many people were at the meeting today? Who all was there? Where do you all go for lunch? What did you order? What did they order? I gave you $20 this morning. How much do you have left? I mean, I am insane. And, <clears throat> and he is answering the questions. Bless his little heart. And um. And I'm gonna tell you, I did everything wrong that they tell you when they tell you they there's a list of things you're not supposed to do in Al Anon. I did every every one of them. I mean pretty much everything they tell you not to do, I did. And um and so and I'm going to these meetings and I'm sharing about this. I'm sharing about what I'm doing. You know, he went to meetings today and he's talking to a sponsor and, blah, 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 blah. and they're just going, Keep coming back and um And then finally, you know, somebody goes, Do you have a sponsor? And I was like, Oh no, I don't. As a matter of fact, Cliff and I get in a fight. I call his sponsor. I didn't have one. Anna, don't do that, by the way. Don't do that either. Again, everything they tell you not to do, I did. But that's what I would do. And so anyway, there was a lady that that was at, this, at these meetings with me. I went to like three meetings a week with her. And every time she shared, I felt like she was talking to me. I mean, I felt like she was talking directly to me. And honestly, at one point, I'm not... No kidding. I really thought she was clairvoyant because something would have happened at my house the night before. I would go the next morning to the meeting and she would talk about that exact same thing. And I kept thinking, how does she know? I mean, she, I mean, I thought she was reading my mind. I really did. That's how crazy I was. And so, but I loved everything that she said and I related to everything. And one day, um, after one of the meetings, I ran after her and I said, I really need a sponsor. Would you please sponsor me? And she said, sure. Here's my number. Call me tonight. And uh, and so I did. I went back to work that day and got home that night. I can tell you I remember where I was standing. I can re- tell you what room I was in in my house. I can tell you what it looked like. I can tell you what I look like, tell you everything about it when I made that fa- first phone call. And I called her, and the first thing she asked me was, why do you think you need Alan on?" So I told her everything he'd ever done. He did this, and I got him with this, and he lied about this, and blah, blah, blah. And I went on and on and on about him. And I'm going to tell you to this day, I cannot tell you if I finished the sentence or took a breath, but she finally got in there. And she goes, well, now we know he's not the problem. You are. Let's talk about that. I know. She seems so nice in those meetings, too. and um, <clears throat> And I'm going to tell you when she said it. Again, I can tell you exactly where I was standing. I can tell you everything about the room. I can tell you everything about that moment. When she said it, it clicked in my brain. I am powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable by me. Had nothing to do with him. Had nothing to do with him. He was doing everything he was supposed to be doing. He was getting better. He was doing the, he was doing the deal, and I was getting sicker. And she said, if you want me to sponsor you, we're going to take these steps and you're going to do the work. And I said, yes, ma'am. And so we started going through the steps. Now I'm just going to tell you, before I got in here, here's what you need to know. There are people that knew me and knew Cliff that tried to warn me. Seriously. And I would get these calls, and this is generally the conversation that would be had. They would say, hey, I heard you were dating Cliff Gooding. Is that true? And I'd say, yeah, do you know him? And they'd go, oh, yeah. And I'd say, well, tell me about him. And this is generally what they would say. They'd say, well, you know, he's one of the smartest human beings on this earth. He's brilliant. And I knew he was smart. He did his undergraduate in three years. He's an attorney. He graduated top 5% in his law class. He was seventh in his class. And they'd say, and he's real successful, and I knew that at the time I met him, he had this huge law firm downtown Oklahoma City. And then he's, and they'd say, and he was first name partner before he was 30. And they'd say, and he's a lot of fun. And I knew that because we'd been having a lot of fun till we didn't. And then they'd say this, but he's a liar. He's a cheat. He's arrogant. He's egotistical. You cannot trust him as far as you can throw him and you need to stay away from him. And what I heard was he needs you. So when I tell you I needed this program way before I ever met him, I'm going to tell you I needed this program way before him because it was not about him. It was not about him. So we start going through the steps, and we recognize the powerless and the manageability in my life in step one. And step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now I'm going to tell you, I grew up in church. My daddy had started a church when I was little. He was not a minister or or a preacher or anything like that, but he'd helped start a church when I was little. And we always went to church. So I knew about God. I had no problem with believing there was a God bigger or a power bigger than me. and And I choose to call that power God no problem with that. I did not think I was insane. I thought he was insane, but I did not think I was insane. I I really didn't. I didn't understand that insanity part. And she said, do you know the definition of insanity? And I said, no. She said, it's doing the same thing over and over expecting different results. Can you relate to anything like that? And I'm going to tell you all those things that I told you that I did, the begging, the pleading, the crying, the threatening, the punishing, the searching, the stalking, all that stuff, all those times that I did that. Every single time that I did any of those things, I thought, this is the day it's going to work. This is the time he's going to hear it. This is the day it's going to be different. If I say it in the right way, if I do the right inflection, if I do whatever, this is the time. And I did that hundreds and hundreds of times thinking it was going to be different. So that was the insanity in my life made a decision to turn our lives, our will and our our lives over the power of God as as we understand him. Again, I will tell you, hardest step I took, the absolute hardest step for me. She said, do you trust God? And I said, yes. She goes, no, you don't. I was like, how dare you? And I was like, what? She goes, no, you don't. I go, why do you say that? She said, because you've been trying to do his job your whole life. And she was right she said let me ask you something when was the last time you ever gave the, you gave something to god and you didn't try to take it back you didn't try to finagle manipulate coerce try to get your way in some way try to just you know get some way when's the last time you gave anything to god and you just left it alone give me give me an example yeah i got nothing i got nothing because i've always done that i've always had to have my way because i'm always right If you would just listen to me, we would be fine. Thank you very much. There was one thing, one time that I could think of. When my son was born, he had to have open heart surgery at three days old. I gave that to God. Had I been a surgeon, probably not. You see, the only time that God got got anything from me is when I had absolutely no other choice and I was desperate enough to give it to him. And as soon as I got my way, I forgot all about it again. I took it right back. She said, we're going to start practicing trust in God. You're going to get on your knees every single morning. You're going to say that third step prayer. I don't care even if you mean it if you mean it or not. You're going to say it every on your knees every morning. And then when you find yourself taking control of the world again, you're going to give it back to God. And I don't care if you have to get on your knees 8,000 times a day. That's what you're going to do. You're going to practice trust in God, and you're going to leave it alone. And I started doing that she said, get ready. That's great. While you're doing that, get busy on your four step. And so I started working on my four step. I got down with my four step and I called her and I said, I finished my four step. I'm I'm done. And she said, great. Be at my house Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. We're going to do your fifth step. I said, okay. It was fall break and, uh, and, uh, Cliff was home with, uh, our daughter. And at that time, we were remodeling um, the, both of our kids' rooms. And the only thing left to do in our daughter's room was to get her bedding. And uh, it was on a Friday, and I remember he called me up at work, and he said, guess what we did today? And I said, what? He said, we went and got Rachel's bedding. And my first thought was, how dare you? How dare you do that without my input, my permission, my influence, whatever? How dare you? But I didn't say that because I did have a sponsor, and I just finished my four-step, and I knew this was coming. So I said, okay, and I hung up the phone. And I came home that night, and I said, show me what you got. And again, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I remember where I was standing. I remember what I was wearing. I remember what they looked like. I remember the room. I remember everything about it. And they brought it into the kitchen, and, his, and, and my, my stepdaughter was there and him. And I said, show me what it was. And they showed me. And I looked at that stuff, and I said, you know what? This color doesn't even match our room. We just painted it. This color doesn't even match her room. And I said, this material is so thin, she's going to tear that up in no time. And I said, and you spent way too much money on that. And, you know, he tried to do a kind, decent thing, and I ripped him to shreds for it. And I did it in front of his daughter. And I took that stuff the next morning, and I threw it in the trunk of my car because I'm going to take it back because I know better, because I'm right. And I go to do my fist up. And I get there, and we hadn't gotten, we had barely gotten started before she stopped me. And she said, "I got to go get something to drink." And she came back, and she said, "Now listen, before we get started on this again, is there something that has happened that may that's not on this four step that you want to talk about?" And I thought, "Oh my God, he called her." Anna. <laughs> and I, and I got to be honest, I wouldn't have blamed him because I told you I'd called his sponsor a few times. And I said, "Yes," and she said, "Well, tell me what that is." And I told her about the bedding. And she said, do you know what you did when you did that? And I said, yes. Once again, I had to be right. I had to be in control. I had to have my way. She said, no, that's not what you did. You see, when you told her that that color didn't match her room, you told her her opinion didn't matter. And when you told her that material was so thin, she'd tear it up in no time, you let her know that no matter what decision she made for the rest of her life, you would always know better. And when you told her it was too expensive, you told her she wasn't worth it. You see, those are the exact nature of my wrongs. It is not the big stuff that I can see. It's not just the controlling and the manipulation and all that stuff. It's the things that I do every single day to everybody in my life because I have the arrogance to think that I know better and that I'm always right. And that's what does the damage. And it's damage that leaves a mark. That affects them for the rest of their lives. And unfortunately, those are the things that I've been doing to everybody my whole life, every single day. And I have never given it a thought. It didn't even come to my consciousness. And that was the damage I had done. We went back through my fifth step and we identified the exact nature of my wrongs. In every area, in every relationship, with everything that I said and did to everybody I knew. She said, you don't have to change anything. You have to change everything. She said, but you don't have to do it overnight because it's taking you a long time to get yourself in this big of a knot. It's going to take God a little time to untie it. When I got down with that fifth step, I'm going to tell you, I was both horrified and elated at the same time. I'm horrified because now I see exactly who I am and I cannot unsee it. I now know who I am and the damage I have done and I cannot deny that anymore. There is no more justification. There is no more rationalization. There is no more excuses for why I've done what I've done. I have done damage and I now see it and I can't unsee it. And I'm also elated because I know that this program has answers for me and there are tools that are available to me and I can be somebody different and I don't have to be that person anymore. She sent me home to do six and seven. I was very thorough. I made sure that I didn't leave anything out. I I, I mean, we had kind of gone through all that. I made a list of my character defects. I, we went over those. She had me start out in the seventh step prayer, and I made my list of amends. We went over that, and I started making my amends. When I divorced my husband, he did not want a divorce. He wanted me... Uh, he he wanted me to stay and i and i was and i was done and he knew it but he was trying everything and he was desperate and he was mad and he told me that if i divorced him he was going to do whatever he could to make me pay and that and that i was going to regret ever leaving him and i'm going to tell you he did some really shady things and he did some unethical things and um and uh he managed to get custody of our 4-year-old little boy and I'm going to tell you, I thought that was the worst thing that could ever happen. And I was mad at him and I was mad at God and I was mad at the judge because there was a lot of things that had happened and I was, I was upset. And by doing this fourth and fifth step, what I realized was that little boy had seen enough horrors on the weekends and in the summer. I can't imagine what he'd have been like if he'd been with me full time. He would have absolutely deserved to have been taken away from me. And God saw fit that that boy was in a safe home with a good dad and a good school district and that he was happy and loved. And so I don't remember if I was picking up or dropping off one day, but I'm going to tell you, I had not been very kind to my ex-husband. I'd taken him back to court a couple of times. We had had some not nice conversations for years. And, uh, and I am t- i can't, again, can't remember if I was picking up or dropping off, but I remember I, I asked him, I said, can I talk to you? Um, and he said, sure. And I'm sure he was thinking, God, what now? And uh, I got out of my car, and he got out of his truck, and we stood in this parking lot, and I said, I just need to say something to you. And he said, what? And I said, um, I need to thank you for being such a good dad to Colby. And I want you to know how, how proud I am of the way that you've raised him and the things that you've done for him. And you've done a really good job. And I want you to know how much I appreciate that. He turned white. I was pretty sure he was going to pass out, so I left. And um, I got about five minutes down the road, and he called me. And he said, I can't tell you what that means to me. You see, I never thought I'd done a very good job of being his dad. I sure as heck didn't think you thought that. And somehow after that, he got better. When I got kicked out of that house when I was 16 years old, I didn't talk to my mom for three years. And I hadn't talked to her much since then. And my sponsor had me start emailing my mother every week. And so I started doing that. And then after a while, she said, now you need to pick up the phone and call her every week. And I started doing that. And I've been doing that for a while. I can't tell you how long i had been, but I've been doing that for a while. And uh, uh, one day uh, on the phone, she brought up, not me, she brought up how I was raised. And she said to me, I can't tell you how many times I've cried myself to sleep for the things that I allowed to happen to you and the way that you were raised. And out of my mouth came, well, mom, you need to learn to forgive yourself because I've forgiven you a long time ago. And it was the truth. And I can't even tell you when it happened. My mom is still alive. She is 93 years old, and she has not changed. I'm just going to tell you, my mama has not changed. She's a spitfire. She's crazy. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I'm at, I can have a relationship with my mother today. And it's not like it was when I was a little girl, but it's the best that we can do. And it's, and it's really pretty decent. And she knows that she can depend on me, and she knows that if she needs anything, that she can call me because I'm a good daughter today. See, my sponsor told me a long time ago, it's not about what they do. It's about what you do. It's not your mom's job to be a good mom. It's your job to be a good daughter because you're the one with the program, not her. I made the rest of my amends. And uh, 10, 11, and 12 is where I live. 10, 11, 12 is really to me is just clean house, trust God, and help others. That's really what 10, 11, 12 is. It's where I grow my relationship with God, and it's where I grow in this program. My dad died a month before I got in this program And unfortunately he never got to meet you people and he never got to see this But I was all good with my dad I had no unfinished business with my dad. I was a good daughter to him I had said and done everything that needed to be said and done and I am so grateful for that because I know that that is not Everybody's experience but god saw fit that I was able to clean up anything with my dad way before I got here And I am so grateful for that at the time that my dad died, I was having dinner at his house with him and my stepmom. Every Wednesday night, my son and I would go over every Wednesday night and have dinner with them. And after my dad died, my stepmom asked me, she said, Are you still going to come over on Wednesday nights? And again, that mom, that stepmom had become the mother I'd always wanted, and she and I had become really close. And I said, Of course I am. It's a free home-cooked meal. And she said, I'm so glad. I was worried that you wouldn't. And we continued to do that. And about five years after my dad died, my stepmom met a man. And, uh, my stepmom's about 5'11. Um, she's got silver white hair. She looks like the former women's Tennessee basketball coach, Pat Summit. If you look up Pat Summit, that's pretty much what my stepmama looks like. And, um, and so anyway, she's met this man and she wants me to meet him and she, he's coming to dinner one night. And she said, listen, um, I, I want you to meet Herschel. He's coming Wednesday night. And I said, okay, I think that's great. She said, now listen, I need to tell you something. And I said, what? She goes, he's only about 5'6. <laughs> I go, Mom, you may not have noticed, but I'm okay with that. And, uh, and sure enough, I meet Herschel. He's five, six. He's got dark brown hair, baby blue eyes, great smile, sweet as he can be. I mean, just as sweet as he can be. And uh, a few months after that, um, I'd taken my stepmom on a trip, and we were in New York, and we were walking around, and I said, You know, I never thought you'd get married again, but I could see you marrying Herschel. And she goes, I could too. <laughs> and, uh, sure enough a few months after that I got a call from her and she said hey I need to talk to you about something and I said you're getting married aren't you and she said not if you're not ready I know how much your daddy meant to you and I know if this is too much or if this is too soon I can wait and I went oh mom don't ever give me that much power again (laughs) I said my daddy would have uh, my daddy would have loved Herschel and he would want you to be happy and he wouldn't want you to be alone and I think that's great and so they got married and uh, for five years, they've been, they were married, and we had a great relationship. And then at the end of that five years, my stepmom got sick. And everything had been going great until then. And my stepmom got sick. And my stepmom had never been sick a day in her life. I am not kidding you. She's never been sick. But she she was having trouble. And I got a call, said go to the emergency room, and I did. And she was having problems breathing. And they found out she had organized pneumonia in her lungs. And uh, she was in the hospital for like 10 days. And uh, And then she got to go home. And this was like in uh, first of October and she got to go home. And then in November, she was having problems breathing again. They put her back in the hospital for a few days. It got her leveled out again and she got to go home again. And then December, same thing, had to get her leveled out again. They sent her back home. And then uh, in January, it happened again. And uh, it seems like she just couldn't overcome it. And uh, then they found some cancer underneath um, her arm and took that out. And everything was really, you know, seemed to be progressing pretty well. And and it was a Monday, and I went to go see her after work. And I'd been there a couple of hours, and all of a sudden my stepmom said, and it was 5 o'clock, and she said, don't you have a meeting to go to tonight? Because she had met you people, and she had heard me speak. And she had seen the changes that had happened with Cliff and I, and she loved AA, and she loved Al-Anon, and she knew when my home group met. And I said, you know what, mom, I could skip it tonight. And she said, no, you need to go. And I said, are you sure? And she said, yes, I'm fine. And she was, they had taken her off the big uh, oxygen. They just had a little nose cannula and she was doing great. Mm-hmm. She said, no, I'm fine. You go. And I said, okay. And so she says to me what she says to me every time I leave her, she says, don't forget that I love you. And I said, I won't. I love you too. She says, I always remember. I said, I will. And I left. And I went to my home group that night, and I checked on her during the week, and she was doing great. That next Saturday morning, I would gotten up and uh, had, done, had ran with some friends, and then uh, Cliff and I went to a basketball game. And then we came home, and we were going to a dinner and meeting that night with some friends. And I got a call from Herschel, and I answered the phone, and I said, Hey, Herschel. He said, Hey, baby, your mom's gone. And I was not expecting that. And uh, the next day, I went out to their house, and it was just Herschel and I, and we were waiting on our siblings to get there. And uh, when, my mom, when my stepmama died, she had insisted on sleeping in her room at the top of the stairs. They had two perfectly good bedrooms downstairs, but no, she had to sleep in her room. But unfortunately, by the time that she would climb the stairs, she literally would be out of air, and she would collapse in bed. And so Herschel had gotten a chair lift. And it had gotten installed the day before she left for the hospital for the last time. And I don't know why I asked this question. It's not something I normally would ask or care about. But we were just sitting there, and all of a sudden I said, Herschel, how much did you pay for that chairlift? And he said, I don't know, like $2,700 or something. And I go, and she got to use it one time. And without skipping a beat, he looked me straight in the eyes, and he said, it was worth it. And that taught me this. No matter what has happened in my life, no matter what pain I have caused others, and no matter what has been done to me, if it got me to you, it was worth it. You see, I would not change one second of my life, not one second, if it was going to cost me being here. Everything that I have today and everything that I am today is because of the direct result of the pro- these programs and the God of my understanding. And it has given me so much, and it has made me so much. I am the wife I am today. I am the mother I am today. I am the sister that I am today. I am the sponsor and sponsee I am today. I am the coworker I am today. I am the friend I am today. All because of you. And I've been comfortable in my own skin for a really long time now. And I wouldn't change that. I have a great relationship with the God of my understanding. It is the most important relationship I have. And I work on it every single day. That year was a horrible year. I will just tell you, my stepmom died in January. In February, we had a horrible family tragedy that involved a murder and suicide. <clears throat> in March, we had like two weeks' notice that we had to move all of our offices' six floors. Um, in April, my son got in a, a, a wreck and totaled his truck, and he was fine, <clears throat> but he wanted me to give him the insurance check. And Cliff and I had helped pay for the truck, and we had paid for the insurance, and I said, I'm not going to give you this check if you want to go get another vehicle you're more than welcome to do it we will help you if you need extra money but i'm not giving you this check and he got mad and wouldn't talk to me and he and i was calling him and he wouldn't answer the phone i was texting him he wouldn't text me back and uh and i you know it I, and it was like i'd never been in a meeting of Anon. i mean i was texting him stuff like by god i paid for this phone i'll shut it off you don't call me mister and a uh, spiritual giant that i was and um And then I called my sponsor because that's what I do. And by the way, I've had the same sponsor since I've been here for the whole 22 years. She's still been my sponsor. She still calls me out. She still calls me. She knows exactly who I am and what I am. And she's, oh, um, I mean, she's on me all the time and she's great. So I called her and I said, I said, told her what was going on. And she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I'm going to tell you the one thing that I did right in this whole program. The only thing that I did right is I've always followed her direction. And I said, okay, great. What are we going to do? She goes, leave him alone. And I thought, she's lost it. And I said, it's my son. And she's like, yeah, I know, leave him alone. Don't call him, don't text him, leave him alone. And I said, okay. And so I did. And three months went by and I had not talked to him. And I'm talking to my sponsor one day on the phone. And she says, have you heard from Colby? And I go, no. And she said, okay, here's what you can do. You can get him a card. And the only thing it can say is I love you and I miss you, mom. And the reason why she gives me that direction is because she knows me. And she knows I'm going to say something like, it would be really great to hear your voice. I would love to see your face. And so I get the card and I say, I love you and I miss you, mom. At the time, my best, my sponsee, best friend's husband worked with my son. We're at our home group on Monday night. I gave her the card. I said, do you think you can get this to Colby? And she said, sure. And so the next day I'm at work and about 10 o'clock in the morning, my phone starts blowing up and it's my son. And he's texting me and he's saying stuff like, I'm so sorry, mom. I was just mad and I miss you and I miss Cliff. And do you think we could go to dinner this week? I'd really like to talk to y'all. And I was so excited. And so I called my sponsee and I said, so you got Colby the card? And she goes, no, it's still in my car. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, that is exactly how God works. I'm supposed to show up, follow directions and get out of the way. And he will take care of the rest. And he always takes care of the rest. And for some reason, I still have moments where I think I know better and I forget that he takes care of the rest. When my son was 26, he joined the Army and he didn't tell me. And I don't mean he went to the recruiter station and signed up and said, guess what, Mom? I mean he was in boot camp when I found out i have been calling his phone for a few days. It kept going to voicemail. And finally, um, I found uh, on Facebook, I found this um, post that he had uh, posted to a group that I am not a member of um, that told that he had joined the Army. I might have been doing a little investigating, but that's beside the point. Has nothing relevant to do with this story. Anyway, and, uh, and I called his dad, and I said, hey, did Colby join the Army? And he said, yeah. And he said, did he not tell you? And I said, no. And he said, Lori, I promise you, I told him he had to call you and tell you. And I said, I believe you, but he didn't. And he said, he told me he'd call you. He told me he would. I was like, it's fine. I just..." And for two days, I walked around thinking, why would he not tell me? Why would he not tell his mom that he joined the Army? That's kind of a big deal. You should tell your mother I'm his mother for Pete's sake. Why would you not tell me? I can't believe he didn't tell me he joined the Army. I mean, he joined the Army and didn't tell my mom. And it was like God hit me on top of the head and it was not why did he t- why didn't he tell you it was why would he why would he and i called my sponsor and i said i told you know about it and she said well that's a good question why would he you see i've been trying to run his life his whole life and every time that little that boy made a decision that i didn't agree with i let him know it and every time he made a decision that i thought was stupid or bad or whatever i let him know it I've been trying to run his life his whole life. I had gone from parenting to controlling years ago, and I didn't even see it. Sure enough, I got a letter from him a few days later that said, Guess what, Mom, I joined the Army. Um, And he said, and it was the saddest and sweetest letter, I'm going to tell you. It said stuff like this, Mom, I'm sorry that I didn't tell you that I joined the Army, but I didn't want our last conversation to be a fight. And I just didn't want to see the look of disappointment in your eyes one more time. And I am so sorry that I didn't talk to you about this. But I hope you know that I try to do this because I thought it was the best decision for me. And if you're disappointed in me, I understand because sometimes I disappoint myself. And if you never want to speak to me again, I understand. But I love you and I just want you to be proud of me. And I got to write him back, and I got to take full responsibility for the fact that his mother was not a safe person to tell that he had joined the Army because she was controlling and because she thought she knew best and because she thought she was always right and that that wasn't on him. That was on me. He called me the next weekend because he finally got phone privileges, and uh, I asked him, I said, did you get my letter? And he said, yeah. And I said, is there anything else I can do to make that right? He said, no, Mom, I think we're good. And I said, well, let me just say this. If you're ever in a point where you have to make a decision and you either have to disappoint me or disappoint yourself, you need to disappoint me every single time. And he and I are good today. He is 32 years old. He got married a couple of years ago. He married a girl with three kids. He seems pretty happy and I stay out of his life and I stay out of his business. He calls me for advice and I do not give it. He'll say, what do you think I should do, Mom? And I, th- I say stuff like this, you know, you know, honey, you're pretty smart. I'm pretty sure you're going to figure it out. Or, you know what? You're a grown man. You get to make those decisions for yourself. I'm behind you no matter what. I love you. I do not give advice, even when asked. There was a couple back home, Jack and Hody Mitchell. They were an American Indian couple. Jack died with 42 years of sobriety, and Hody Mitchell died with 36 years of sobriety, and she was also a member of Al-Anon. Hody went down to Arizona one time and, and went to an American Indian conference, and she learned this prayer, and she brought it back to us. And there was and people in our home group and people, um, you know, honestly in the city at, at different groups learned this prayer from them. And every time that we're asked to close with the Lord's Prayer, we lead it with this prayer first, and I always close with it, and it goes like this. I've been told the reason we join hands is to remind us of the truth that we are no longer alone. Our prayer is for the still suffering alcoholics in these rooms and on the streets. Hold on to the person's hand next to you like your life depends on it, because someday it may. Thank you for holding my hand and allowing me to hold yours. Thank you, Lord.